Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. While we have been self-isolating, one of the things that I uh, determined that I was going to do is to become more present, to to be aware, to be more in the moment. Mm -hmm. And what that has led me to discover is that I have some very weird habits that I didn't even realize I was doing. (laughs) Um, For example, I was making a sandwich yesterday. And while I was doing that, I was heating up a bowl of soup in the microwave, and I realized that I was racing the microwave to finish my sandwich. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I do the same thing. Like, I, in the morning, generally what I will do is I'll let the dogs out and feed the dogs, and then I'll get the coffee water started. Uh-huh. And my goal is to have the dishes done and the kitchen tidied before the coffee's done. And sometimes it's a matter of me like throwing dishwasher <laughs> dishes in the dishwasher um, in an effort to like make it there in time. The thing is, the whole sandwich racing the microwave thing, I do it all the time and I never realized it until yesterday. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm highly competitive. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I'm really hungry. I don't know. Who knows? I'm discovering things about myself during this quarantine that I didn't necessarily want to know. <laughs> I think we all do things like that. Sure. I, I mean, I would imagine. I know that a lot of times, like if I'm the passenger in a car <laughs> while we're driving, if there's like... Um, you know, a dead bug or some schmutz on the windshield. A lot of times I'll close one eye and try to keep that schmutz in line with like the yellow line on the road <laughs> or, you know, well, I mean. That's just crazy. <laughs> that's all that is. Maybe. Well, I have a story for you that I would like to share, if you do not mind. I would love that. Okay. I have to apologize. You might hear me moving around a bit uh, because I smell something and I can't figure out what the smell is. Yeah, you've been sniffing your laundry, um, your clothing, since we sat down. Have you identified the smell yet? I cannot figure out what it is. Can't figure it out? Okay. Well, maybe you'll, you'll determine it before the podcast is over. It's maddening. According to a report published by Dr. Aiki Chukwa Azwanye in the British Medical Journal on uh, the 20th of December in 1997, a very curious case of a patient known only as AB, the initials AB, continues to confound the medical world. A case that is so strange, it leaves medical experts with very few explanations Uh, But they range from the mundane to the supernatural. I'm very interested. 
Now, you know, it is tragic, of course, when somebody becomes ill and the symptoms go undetected and undiagnosed and the uh, and the um, disease continues to progress. Sure. So often if the symptoms had been detected early, the patient would have had a much better chance of recovery and or survival. Sometimes we get lucky when we go to the doctor for a, um, a regular routine exam and they find something and discover it early enough and things are fine. And then there are cases that defy all rational explanations and point to the possibility that there is uh, more to reality than that which we see. Okay. Such as the case of A.B. Now, again... This was a medical report that was published in the British Medical Journal, and I found a copy of it on the Southwest Psych website. Dr. Azwanye's report states the following. This is what happened. Okay. Now, he's talking about his patient, A.B., of course. Born in continental Europe in the mid-1940s, the patient settled in Britain in the late 1960s. After a series of jobs, she got married, she started a family, and settled down to a full-time commitment as a housewife and a mother, she rarely went to the general practitioner as she enjoyed good health and had never had any hospital treatment throughout her entire life. Her children had also been in good health. Okay. However, in the winter of 1984, she was at home reading and she heard a distinct voice inside of her head. The voice told her, please don't be afraid. I know it must be shocking for you to hear me speaking to you like this, but this is the easiest way I could think of. My friend and I used to work at the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street, and we would like to help you. Dr. Azwanye's report goes on to say, A.B. had heard of the Children's Hospital, Mm -hmm. but did not know where it was and had never visited it. Her children were well, so she had no reason to worry about them. This made it all the more frightening for her. And the voice intervened again, quote, to help you see that we are sincere, we would like you to check out the following. And the voice gave her three separate pieces of information, which she did not possess at the time. So she went and she checked them out and they were true. But this did not help because she had already come to the conclusion that she had gone mad. Oh. In a state of panic, A.B. went to see her doctor, who referred her urgently to me. Again, quoting from Dr. Azwanye's report, I saw her at the psychiatric outpatients clinic and diagnosed a functional hallucinatory psychosis. I'm really surprised that she went to a doctor. I think I would need to have a lot more go wrong before i was like hey guess what hearing voices yeah yeah Mm. well i think the thing that convinced her was that these voices gave her three specific bits of information that uh that a b did not possess and she went and checked them out and they were verified to be true so that kind of made her go okay maybe i should go to the doctor like they're telling me to i would just assume that i had known that information <laughs> yes, and it logged course. it away somewhere else. Uh, of course you would. <laughs> and then you'd die. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sweetie. So the doctor said he offered her general supportive counseling as well as medication with thyroidazine. To her great relief, the voices inside her head disappeared after a couple of weeks of treatment. Um, she went off on holiday, and while she was abroad and still taking 
the medication, the voices returned. Aha. Uh-huh. They told her that they wanted her to return to England immediately, as there was something wrong with her for which she should have immediate treatment. I'm sorry, you say they as in the voices, so it's yes. multiple voices. It's two voices. It's two voices. Yes. That's unusual. Yeah. I know, it's weird. By this time, she was also having other beliefs of delusional nature. So it wasn't just the voices. There were other things happening. She returned to London, and I saw her again at my outpatient's clinic. By this time, the voices had given her an address to go to. Reluctantly, and just to reassure, reassure her that it was all in her mind, her husband took her by car to the address in question. It was the computerized tomography department of a large London hospital. When she arrived there, the voices told her to go in and ask to have a brain scan for two reasons. That she had a tumor in her brain and her brainstem was inflamed. Because the voices had told her things in the past that it turned out to be true, A.B. believed them and went in and said that she had a tumor and was in a state of great distress when I saw her the next day. In order to reassure her, I requested a brain scan, explaining in my letter that the hallucinatory voices had told her that she had a brain tumor, that I had not personally found any physical signs suggestive of an intracranial space occupying lesion, and that the purpose of the scan was essentially to reassure the patient. So he goes on to talk about how the hospital's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Right. That's really expensive just to, you know, make assure. Make her feel better. Yeah, to make her feel better. They said there was no clinical justification for such a procedure. Sure. It was also implied that I had gone a little overboard, Dr. Oswanye says, believing what my patient's hallucinatory voices were telling her. Eventually, after some negotiation, the scan was done in April. The initial findings led to a, re- a repeat scan with enhancement in May, and again, this is in the year 1984, revealing a left posterior frontal parafalcine mass, which extended through the flax to the right side. It had all the appearances of a meningioma. So clearly, the people doing the tests at the clinic were just shocked by this. Of course. This woman comes in. She has no symptoms. Uh, she says, you know, uh, the voices in my head are telling me that you need to give me a brain scan because I have a brain tumor and the brain stem is inflamed, but there are no symptoms. And so they say no, but then they do it and they find out that she is exactly right, even though they had to do the test a couple of times to find it. His report goes on to say the consultant neurosurgeon to whom I referred A.B. noted that the absence of headache or any other focal neurological deficits related to the mass and discussed with A.B. and her husband the pros and the cons of an immediate operation as against waiting for the symptoms to appear. So, of course, she's pushing for let's have this operation. Right. Everything the voices in my head are telling me have have proven out. They've been true. I'm not waiting this thing out. Yeah, no, thank you. We're going to get this done. I think, I mean, on a, on a most basic level, if I knew that there was a tumor inside of me, I would be frantic to get it out. Even if I knew that there was nothing wrong with, like if it yeah. wasn't cancerous or anything like that, I wouldn't want it there. Like it would make me, I would know it was there. 
I would start to imagine that I could feel it. Uh, you know, I would want it out regardless. Yeah, I know. I, I feel the same way. 90% sure I would say, yeah, just go ahead and cut that thing out. <laughs> and then I'd hope it didn't have teeth and fur. Fur. <laughs> <laughs> That's your wolf twin. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Azwanye went on to say, A.B. later told me that uh, when she recovered consciousness after the operation, the voices spoke to her again and said, we are pleased to have helped you. Goodbye. There was no post-operative complications. The dosage of the medication was halved every four days. And when it was stopped, there was no return of the hallucinatory voices or delusions that she had previously experienced. That's unreal. Twelve years went by. In 1997, A.B. called the doctor up to wish his family a festive holiday season. It was Christmas time. And to tell him that she she was completely well and had been in the 12 years since the operation. It was this telephone call that brought this case to mind and, and made him write this report for the medical journal. He sums up in his, re his report, it was well known that intracranial lesions can be associated with psychiatric symptomatology, but this is the first and only instance I have come across in which hallucinatory voices sought to reassure the patient of their genuine interest in her welfare, offered her a specific diagnosis when there were no clinical signs that would have alerted anyone to the tumor, directed her to the type of hospital best equipped to deal with her problem, mm. expressed pleasure that she had last at last received the treatment they desired for her, bid her farewell, and then disappeared. Wow. I think that, um, you know how like dogs can sense things that we can't sense? Yeah. I wonder if there's a, a certain level of um, like we can sense it, but we kind of shut that part off. Like, you know how they say every child is an artist. It's just a matter of keeping yourself an artist, you know, that kind of thing. Like yeah, maybe we just yeah. tamp that ability down or we don't tap into those abilities and we ignore what we do have the capabilities of doing for whatever reason. Um, and maybe just she was able to break through to herself and say, listen, this is something that's yeah. happening. And, you know, that was the only way that she could translate what her body was telling her. That in and of itself is fascinating. Absolutely. And that's one of the explanations that the medical community uh, came up with because uh -huh. no, nobody wanted to believe this. They didn't, no one wanted to believe that voices in her head told her to go and get this done. And uh, one theory was that her body was somehow trying to alert her to something that she wasn't even consciously aware of. Right. Uh, much in the same way that you just described. Another person, another uh, physician or medical expert suggested that uh, the whole story was made up while in Europe. And when she came to the UK, she created this story in order to get an expensive procedure performed free under the National Health Service. Uh, that didn't hold up, though, because A.B. had lived in the country for a decade and a half prior to hearing the voices and was eligible anyway. So it wasn't like she came in from a right. different country and was trying to. But but those are the kind of explanations that um, that people have come up with. And those are the best ones, because other than that, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> I think that's um, something that I say to myself 
uh, more <laughs> than I'd like to. Yeah. What the hell was that all about? <laughs> now, there are similar cases, but with different outcomes. According to Live Science in Switzerland in 2017, a woman in her late 40s reported that she had heard voices from above, which asked her to offer herself as a divine sacrifice. Under their instruction, she stabbed herself multiple times. In reviewing the unique and disturbing case, psychiatrists concluded that a tumor growing on her brain had affected her thinking throughout her life. Depending upon the region of the brain affected, patients can hear voices, sometimes for prolonged periods and in vivid detail. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that having a tumor can cause those types of auditory hallucinations. But that doesn't explain why, in this particular instance, the the voices directed her to the proper medical uh, personnel and clinic and procedure and diagnosed it before the doctors ever did. That's really interesting. I remember seeing a, I think it was like a law and order or something years ago, where a man had committed murder. And the the whole episode was about figuring out why this guy who had never been violent before committed murder. And they discovered it was because he had a brain tumor and it was pressing on whatever uh, that, that made him violent and, and kill someone. And then there was an episode of House where a woman's husband had a brain tumor and he was treated and was a completely different personality. He had always been really sweet and um, gentle and kind. Uh, but when they removed the brain tumor, his true personality came out and he was a total dillweed. And that was a real bummer. <laughs> yeah. You don't want it to end that way. No, but I think the the concept that the brain tumor helped her discover the brain tumor is really interesting. It, it, it's fascinating. <laughs> Brains are weird. We have learned this over the course of uh, this podcast. Brains are weird. Right. And even though his books don't necessarily deal with uh, tumors and lesions, they do deal with uh, the bizarre way that brains can operate. Dr. Oliver Sacks has a number of great books, including The Man Who Thought His Wife Was a Hat. Mm-hmm. Um, Musicophilia, which is really interesting, too. It's like, you have that. Yeah, I do yeah. have that. And then, of course, the uh, Sleeping Plague book that he wrote that inspired the movie Awakenings with Robin Williams and Robert Duvall. And I did an episode on that way back a couple years ago. So look that stuff up. You'll find it interesting, I'm sure. I'm going to go read The Man Who Thought His Wife Was a Hat now. That sounds very interesting. Please don't think I'm a hat. Get on my head. What? And now, that thing in the middle. Here's some more of the world's worst made-for-TV products. Number five, the bowl bright. The bowl bright is uh, LED lights that go inside your toilet lid uh, so you can enjoy uh, what looks to be a rave inside your shitter. (laughs) From the makers of dump cakes, now come dump meals. Because if there's one word in the vast expanse of the English language that denotes a delicious delicacy, it's the word dump. I can't help but be interested in this. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, sauna pants. According to Looper.com, any professional trainer worth listening to will tell you that the key to achieving fitness goals is a humid crotch. So basically, it's an electric heating blanket in the shape of shorts. Oh, my God. For why, though? Do you hate your sperm? Swamp ass. Number two, I remember this one, potty putter. 
That's right, Putty Putter attempts to tackle yet another of the many issues that uh, failed inventors feel need to be addressed. Spending too much time on the toilet. So it's like the combination of a, of a, a toilet bath mat and a putting green. So, so you can practice your putting on, on the dumper? Yeah. Oh, okay. That seems like maybe you're just spending too much time in the bathroom. See, like, add more fiber to your diet. Yeah. You're at the golf course a few weeks later, and your friend goes, what the hell? Your short game has just gone to shit. And, <laughs> and number one, easy butter. It's like a staple gun that dispenses butter. Okay. Because one of life's big problems is butter. How does this stuff get made? I mean, what? The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This is the Box of Oddities. I said box. Recent episode, you talked about uh, the man and his dog. What was the dog's name? The uh, the puppy that waited for him at the train. Hachiko. We had so many messages and responses to that uh, particular story. Most people just responded to it with crying emojis. Yeah. I got some really interesting profanity-laced messages <laughs> about how I ruined people's day. Yeah. Laura sent us a message saying, listen to this episode while sorting and trying on my shorts so I know what stays and what gets donated. My mom came in and thought I was crying because my ass got big over the winter. <laughs> Love you guys so much. I'm not crying. You're crying. I currently have a vehicle full of donation stuff because no one's accepting donations right now. And we're in the process of purging our home. So I can't even fit like groceries in my car because <laughs> it's true. It's it's full chock full of just stuff. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? You continue to drive around with all that stuff in your car or do you unload it? I'm not again? going to unload it. See, I'm with you on that. A hundred percent. And also side note. Though you have every right to uh, a body that you choose, uh, keep in mind, your body shape does not determine your value and your ass is just fine. Or should I say fine? It's so fine. <laughs> what you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? What you got for moi? <laughs> si vous play. So the body of a young woman was pulled out of the River Seine in Paris around the late 1880s. It was not known who she was. And when she was sent to the morgue, a death mask was made of her features. But it's unclear if that was done to uh, attempt to establish her identity or because an unnamed morgue attendant was so taken by her beauty. Beginning in 1881, uh, it's said that the bodies of unknown persons would be laid out in a chilled front room of the morgue. Uh, there was a plate glass window in the front so that an endless train of curious people walking by may recognize some of the morgue's unidentified guests. Probably at the same time, people just wanted to look at dead bodies. Yeah, that's, yeah. But they might recognize someone. Sure. I mean, that's how you can justify it. According to Unknown Paris, a volume of engravings from 1893, it was one of the city's less savory landmarks. And uh, there was not a single window, it is said, in Paris that attract, attracted more onlookers. 
This is according to Snopes. The death mask of this particular Parisian girl came to be known as Le Connu de la Seine. She was described as so lovely and so peaceful. Um, they were thought that she was around 16 years old when she died. And there were no marks on her body. It was concluded that she may have taken her own life. Aww. It is questioned, though, whether the expression on her face could have been that of a drowned person. It just, she looked so serene. Hmm. And I think that's why the people became so taken with her. The mesmerizing mask of this dead girl uh, was described by philosopher and author Albert Camus as the drowned Mona Lisa. Because she had not quite a smile, but almost a smile. It was, again, a very peaceful face with just a, a little a little hint of a smile. Hmm. And she became kind of a cultural icon. The original cast had been photographed and new casts were created from the negatives. In the following years, copies quickly became a fashionable morbid fixture in Parisian society. Really? People just used it to brighten up their dens? Yeah. Um, artists recreated it constantly. Uh -huh. uh, people in like bohemian types would decorate their homes with her likeness. It was a very strange trend. And this went on for, for years? For some time, yes. Wow. Uh, numerous speculations as to what her happy expression could offer about her life, about her death, and her place in society. Um, but she was still not discovered. No one claimed her body. No yeah. one said that they knew who she was. Uh, they just knew that they wanted to recreate her likeness. Painters were captivated. Poets and novelists wrote about her. And women wanted to look like her. Hmm. Critic Al Alvarez wrote in a book on suicide called The Savage God, I am told that a whole generation of German girls modeled their looks on her. According to Hans Hess of the University of Sussex, Alvarez reports the girl became the erotic ideal of the period, as Bardot was for the 1950s, and German actresses modeled themselves on her looks. So fast forward to 1958. Wow, okay. Peter Safer is an Austrian physician. And he, with the help of an American doctor named James Elam, has just perfected his revolutionary CPR technique. He presented a paper on this technique in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, Safar believed that his methods could be employed not just by medical professionals, but those outside of the medical field to help save lives, uh, providing that these regular folk were given adequate training in his techniques. So he wanted to more effectively uh, teach this procedure to the masses. And what he needed for that, what he envisioned, was having a life-size doll that novices could practice on. So he's looking for someone to help manufacture these dummies on which people can practice. And he finds the perfect candidate in a Norwegian toy maker whose name was Asmund Lardal. His company had started off in the early 1940s by printing children's books and calendars before they moved on to small toys made out of wood. But after the war, Lardal began to experiment with a new type of material that had just entered mass production, plastic. 
So this new soft, malleable substance he used to manufacture one of his most famous playthings, the Andal, which uh, in post-war Norway was inflatable. It was not inflatable, but it was acclaimed as toy of the year. It had uh, a soft face and oh, okay. was. Yeah. I was just wondering if this was the forerunner to, you know, sex dolls. No. No. Then I've lost all interest in this. <laughs> Story. <laughs> According to Nurse Talk site, uh, Safar and Lardal formed a partnership and set about creating a dummy that served their needs, their CPR needs. I, I stopped listening. <laughs> In addition to having airways, the dummy needed to be a woman because they knew that men at that time would have a really hard time, sure. you know, yeah. society and all that bullshit, um, performing mouth to mouth on a male dummy. And even if it was, you know, it's silly, but they knew that that socially would keep some men from wanting to be involved in, in learning how to do this. Also, that the face should be familiar so that people would be interested and want to care about this dummy <laughs> that they were saving. And he had one of those death masks in his den. <laughs> he, <laughs> I'm not sure if he had one on hand, but they did decide that the face that they would use was that of... Uh, that dead girl. <laughs> Recessi Annie was developed by the Norwegian toy maker and the Austrian Czech physician and uh, with the help of the American physician James Elam and is produced by Lairdell Medical. Recessa Annie? Recessa Annie. I don't like that name. It, well, also known as Resuscitation Annie. Mm -hmm. No, I, I figured that out. But I don't know. It just seems like they could have come up with a better marketing name for it than Resusa Annie. It sounds like, um, well, like a doll, like Betsy Wetsy. Well, I think, you know, I mean, Annie was named after Anne, the famous doll that Lardal had made in his shop for years. So I think that it just made sense that she sure. she continue her work Saves on, on printing costs. That too, for sure. Um, so there were some, let's call them bastardizations of this legend. It was said that the doctor behind the creation of CPR Annie modeled its face after his deceased daughter. And sadly... Uh, you know, that would be really, really weird. I think so. You know what? I'm creating a, uh, a resuscitation dummy that uh, people are going to be putting their mouths on. Mm. Let's make it look like my dead daughter. Yeah. Um, the, it's thought that maybe this this story had been circulated because he he was, in fact, the, the father of a girl who died during childhood. Uh, Safar and his wife did have a daughter in 1954 who they named Elizabeth, and she died soon after birth. Um, but again, it's... Mm. It, it's that's not what the, the doll is, is no. modeled after. No. The toy maker, Lairdal, also had something of a personal stake in the creation of the mannequin on which to practice CPR because he saved his two-year-old son from drowning by oh. pulling him out of the water and clearing his airways. And this was part of his reason for wanting to be involved with this project. Unfortunately, it also led to rumors that 
the doll was based after his child who had drowned. The kid, I mean, was fine. And he, you know, it's just, it's like a game of telephone, really. Anyway, Resuscitation Annie um, was named after the already popular children's doll and is responsible for teaching over 300 million people how to perform CPR. And it's said that Annie has the most kissed face in the world, which is not really kissing, but you know. Yeah. So she was what they thought like 16 Mm -hmm. when they found her floating in the river. Right. How bizarre is that? Over a hundred years later, people still look at her face. Yeah. And it's um, interesting that the idea was, well, we should make it look like someone that people recognize and uh, want to help. Because if it was like an ugly person you didn't recognize, you wouldn't save them. (laughs) Yeah. It's just... So... You come across an accident scene and, okay, I've had CPR training. And then you see that it is a really unattractive person with vomit in their mouth. And you go, I didn't know. This is not what I was expecting. You don't look like Annie at all. Nothing like Annie. I don't even know you. As someone who has spooned vomit out of someone's mouth. <laughs> wasn't me. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> okay. Yes. I, just I say do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is that is true. <laughs> just one step in front of the other. <laughs> that was fascinating. Yeah. A great story. Well, I'm sorry that you lost interest right around the not a sex doll part, but. Somebody should come up with a sex doll that has some sort of a um, self-destruct mechanism in it. So that if you die unexpectedly, mm-hmm. it's some, I don't know, like maybe Bluetooth or something. It alerts the uh, the sex doll to deconstruct. <laughs> Just walk off into the woods. <laughs> no. Get out of here, sex doll. <laughs> Just, no, to like turn it into, uh, I don't know, just a pool of melted uh, plastic or something. So that, you know, when they find it under your bed. They're you- like, oh my God, he was having sex with a pool of plastic. <laughs> That's so weird. (laughs) Hey, freaks, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, As I've been saying, according to quantum physics, once you stop listening to this episode, it ceases to exist. And so if you would document that you've been here. It uh, self-destructs. It does. Turns into a pool of recently fondled plastic. Um, Leave us a review if you would be so kind. We do appreciate it, whether you listen on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. It helps us grow the podcast, and it helps remind us that we are, in fact, real. Also, want to say thank you for some of the recent gifties that we have received. I love getting mail, (laughs) Uh, especially recently. It's been kind of the highlight of our lives. And if you want to uh, send us something, uh, please feel free. Our address is 499 Broadway, Box 164. Bangor, Maine, 04401. And we look forward to hanging out with you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. So, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com 
on Facebook at facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast, on Twitter at Box of Oddities, and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.